Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from the Mountain Dew Sphere in Salt Lake City, Utah. Awesome. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and I'm trying to move my mouth as little as possible and still talk. This week, we have a special guest. I should have asked how to say your... Is it Anatoly... Boy, the last names always get me. Yeah, that's why I go by Tolly. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Anyway, do you want to introduce yourself real quick and, uh, and let us know who you are, what you do, why you're famous, all that good stuff? <laughs> I don't know about the famous part, but uh, I work at a company called Hover. What we do is we make 3D visualizations of houses. And what I do there is sort of all of the side R&D dev tooling work. I think about the experience of our developers and I see how we can create either common libraries or tools to help them do their job better. Gotcha. And we were talking before the show a bit about Pickle.js, which is a testing framework that you've pulled together. Do you want to just talk briefly about that and what it is? Absolutely. So I've been a developer for about eight years and I've worked at startups, I've worked at corporations, and pretty much the story in every single company is the same. We all know that we need to test our software, but no one actually writes tests for our software. I've worked for American Express, I work for Federal Reserve, I work for all these companies which you would think, you know, have these high value, high stakes products yet they don't have any automated tests uh, for any of their software. And the reason being, you feel better. Yeah. <laughs> the reason being is it's really tedious uh, to write tests right now, and no one wants to do it. It's kind of like flossing your teeth. We all know we should be doing it, but, you know, and we probably do do it you know, after we go to the dentist for a week, and then it just kind of drops off. And the mission of Pickle is to make it fun, to make it easy, like a water flosser. Gotcha. So uh, people know that I, I've spent quite a bit more time with Ruby than JavaScript. I'm proficient with JavaScript, but you know I'm no expert. But uh, looking at Pickle.js, it looks a lot like Cucumber. Absolutely. That's because it's based off of uh, Cucumber. Essentially, uh, the way that I came up with Pickle is I took a look at uh, Cucumber and I said, wow, you know, this is really incredible. As a developer, I don't have to waste my time, you know, trying to write all these different scenarios. I could just have a product manager write the various scenarios and kind of convert it to code. But then there's still that tedious step of converting it to code. Mm -hmm. So I started writing tests for an application we have at Hover. And I started realizing I'm basically using the same 20 or so statements. I click on this button. I expect to see that div. So I thought, why am I rewriting the same code that probably every other person in every other company who uses Cucumber, who uses uh, these different frameworks is writing as well? I thought it's basically just a few regular expressions and I could pretty much automate it in a way that a product manager could write all of my tests. That makes sense. And the, the domain-specific language that uh, Cucumber uses is Gherkin. So did you, did you basically just build your own Gherkin engine? Not even. I actually used... So Pickle is a wrapper around different testing engines. And the initial engine that I used is Cypress. 
a huge fan of the product, huge fan of the team. There was an existing plugin that was a Cucumber Gherkin interpreter. And I simply built on top of that. Later on, I built a Selenium Sauce Labs uh, interpreter. Uh, and that was also based off of some just uh, Gherkin interpreter. Nice. So you didn't have to write the Gherkin engine. You just wrote basically the glue code between Gherkin and Cypress. Exactly. I believe if something exists, even if it's a bit of a hack, it's better to use that than try to rewrite everything from scratch. So just to give some context here for the listeners, when I'm looking at the picklejs.com website, what I see looks a lot like Apple script. So it says, scenario, colon, test to side out. New line, when I open the homepage, in quotes, and I click on the, in quotes, get started button inside of the, in quotes, header, then I should be redirected to the, quotes, getting started page. So this to me is like, super readable. Anybody looking at this can probably understand what's being tested without any code experience. And that is what it looks like you're touting at the top of the page as one of the things that's important about this framework. Yeah. You got it. I think uh, another reason for using Pickle is it also doubles as your product's documentation. Most companies I've worked for have extremely uh, difficult and hard to understand products. And it takes months and months for developers to understand how it works from the business end, not to mention salespeople and uh, other business side users. Here, they can just uh, read all of our tests and get a pretty accurate idea of everything that our application can do. So when I first look at it, what I see is magic because I'm not familiar with Cucumber. (laughs) I'm not familiar with Cypress. The only thing I've ever used that looks like this is AppleScript. And AppleScript is really easy to read, but it's impossible to write because the syntax looks like English, but it isn't English. And so you said earlier, it's just a couple of regexes. What are the actual keywords that it's keying off of? And what's the the fluff in these sentence looking tests? Sure. So if you click on the phrases tab on the website, it actually goes through how the regexes work. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, most of the phrases are, I do some action to some element. And the tricky part, I guess, is describing the element. So a lot of times you may want to refer to an element inside of another element, or you might want to refer to an element on another element. Like some of the examples I give, I click the first button of button list. I click the last button of the modal. I click on the button in button list. I click on the button in the modal. So a lot of that is just to avoid strange grammatical situations. It would be very awkward to say something like, I click inside of the image uh, of modal. So how does it know, like, for example, most modals are just some sort of CSS styling on top of a div. So how would this be aware of what a modal means? And first of all, is this, is this meant to execute in like Selenium? Is that what this compiles down to at the end of the day? It can execute in Selenium. It can execute in Cypress. That's actually another big feature of Pickle. You can write the same tests in one language. And then the next time that a cool new testing framework comes out, it'll just work. Okay. So we've got quote button, quote modal, quote main heading, quote button list. So obviously these are more specific keywords. They're not just generic fluff. But what does button list mean or what does modal mean? Exactly. So anything inside of quotes is defined in a super easy to read uh, JSON file. So as a developer, when I'm building out my web page, if you're using something like uh, React, uh, a lot of times it will compile with class names that correspond to the actual React class name. So you actually just have to copy that class name. Or you could put something like a data test ID to refer to that element. Most of the time, though, you do not need that much programming knowledge in order to figure out 
what the element looks like. And the next step of uh, Pickle is going to be creating a little GUI for building that JSON file visually, essentially being able to kind of use a Chrome inspector style interface of clicking on a button, figuring out its selector, placing it in the JSON file. Okay, so these things that are in quotes are referencing a JSON file that I would be creating that has selectors and stuff in it. You got it. Okay, so there's kind of like a relationship between this QA type person and the developer type person where the developer type person is doing more code level stuff. It's not just magic, but this provides a nice abstraction layer where there's a dictionary definition list of things like button, modal, et cetera, and that corresponds to CSS selectors that the developer created to help the QA person. Yes, except for the QA person can most definitely do this on his own, especially if you're using something like React, which automatically generates class names. So if you have a class called modal, which extends uh, extends, uh, react.component, then you could just say .modal. And it will actually use a fuzzy selector in order to find modal within uh, a larger class name. Okay, cool. I think I get the gist of that then. And then you, you'd said that you didn't want to spend all the time talking about Pickle, but you wanted to talk more about some of the generic testing culture issues. And so I want to know a little bit of your thoughts on that as well. Absolutely. So most companies I work in, once they hit about the 150 person count, everything starts to deteriorate, the company culture, the code base, et cetera. And at Hover, we're about to uh, near that number. And of course, everyone is really worried that something like this will happen. The reason why I don't think that this will happen at Hover is because we are putting so much emphasis on the right development and the right testing practices. Right now, our entire team almost is senior engineers, but in order for the company to grow, we're going to have to hire some junior engineers. And whenever you hire junior engineers, they're much more likely to write code which breaks something. Having the proper automated tests will allow us to scale our team and not be afraid of engineers breaking something. The complexity of our applications is only going to grow. And even for senior engineers, it's near impossible to not break something. Another thing is we have a lot of abstractions within the company. For example, we have a library called Machete, which essentially visualizes a house. And it's used by maybe three or four different products within the company. Now, this product was written by a brilliant developer in the company named Frank. He's a PhD in 3D technologies or something like that. But the fact of the matter is he wrote this library five years ago, and no matter how good of a developer he is, it is going to have a lot of practices which are quite outdated. So everyone is afraid to touch the machete code base. What we obviously need to do right now is refactor the machete code base. But the f- reason that no one has uh, refactored the Machete code base is we're afraid that all of these different applications, which are based off of Machete, are going to crash. But thanks to the suite of automated tests, right now we're going through that refactor of this huge, huge, pro- uh, huge uh, library without the fear that it will destroy everything that we have worked for. That's definitely an argument for automated tests, but... Do you find that this approach, especially on a lower level library, makes a ton of sense? Or is this usually a little bit higher level than that? So I definitely believe that you should have tests on multiple levels. Uh, What Pickle is great for is more the feature tests and integration tests. You should, however, have a lot more unit tests on lower level libraries such as Machete. Right. A lot of our consumer apps even though our underlying code of Machete might look like it works, they might break if we do a refactor because we don't anticipate all the scenarios of how this library is being used. Mm -hmm. We feel a lot more safe knowing that all of the consumers of this library fully tested 
how everything should look, both visually and in terms of should this element be there or not. That makes sense. One other thing that I ran into using Cucumber, and I'm I'm sure you run into the same thing here, was that when we were writing the custom... Now, one thing I do like is I do like the selectors.json and the screen.json. That, that clears up probably 50% of the issues I had with you know Cucumber because essentially then I can just refer to common things and know that it's the right common thing. The one thing that I did run into though was that if we ever had to create custom rules, like getting all the regular expressions right and then getting all the data to the right place and getting it to talk to the right thing and find the right element, that was always painful. And and like I said, I think I think having these files that define those things make it easier, but I don't think it completely eliminates that. You're absolutely right. So after I created the Pickle framework, uh, all the engineers in the company started using it in order to create uh, tests for their applications. And obviously, we ran into a lot of scenarios which are not covered by the 20 or so phrases that mm-hmm. I outlined. Luckily, I would say 90, maybe even 95% of scenarios are covered. However, if you do run into something that isn't covered by Pickle, the way that I wrote the framework, it's very easy to build on top of the core concepts that I outline just by extending those files. So for example, all the logic of uh, saying one element is in another element, that's very easily extendable. You just import the uh, regex and you can use it as a rule. The way that we abstract Cypress, the way that we extract uh, Selenium, all of that is easily extendable. So you don't have to figure out what the Selenium code, what the uh, Cypress code is going to uh, look like. You just use the abstraction. I haven't really run into many scenarios where there will be significant difficulty to write the test. That makes sense. And I do like that it it easily extends this way. Yeah, that was just another issue that I had with Cucumber as well, was just you know extending it to do some things that didn't seem as natural to it. So I want to take a step back to what you were saying earlier um, and, and question some of the, do some truth table logic here. So there's like the, the practical good versus the moral good aspect of testing. Like everyone agrees that testing is morally good and we all kind of agree that it ought to be practically good, but we struggle with how to make it practically good. And that's why we have all these different testing frameworks is that people are trying to take this moral principle and find the right way to make it very practical. Now, the reasons we want this are, I think, like the, the primary thing, I think, is so that we can have less fear when we innovate. Because if we have good tests, then we can change old things to create new and potentially better things without so much stress of how that change might affect something. The flip side, which maybe is, I think is maybe more on the unit test side than, than this, but I'd like to hear your opinion, is developing tests in order to help write the code in the first place. So I see those as two different practical things. So, so far, what are your thoughts on uh, up to this point? So I definitely have quite a lot of thoughts on everything you just said. The first part regarding the innovation aspect, I think you hit the nail on the head. As I would the- actually uh, clarify one point. He said, change old things to make better new things. And I would say that it that tests more are a stand-in for understanding things that are hard to understand or to keep the whole story in your head. And, and that way, you know, you don't have to have a vast level of knowledge on any of these particular issues for things. So it could be a new thing that's very complicated, but it's a stand-in for understanding that stuff so that you can move forward without having to understand everything. And so it's essentially a stand-in for brain space so that you can focus on the problem you're trying to solve instead of focusing on trying to understand the entire application. You're absolutely right about that. I think... Let me illustrate an example. Uh, One of my first jobs was working for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And we had an enormous product called Fedwire, which moves money in between banks. Something like 300 engineers uh, were on this one project. 
Now, this was the typical flow. We've got a feature, add this button to Fedwire. A developer would code the feature. One week later, the QA team, which manually tested everything, would come back and say, hey, your button just broke these five things. So now we have to fix those five things. We wait another week. QA says, those five things that you fixed, they just broke another 25 things. Essentially, it just became a problem due to the number of engineers that you could not get instant feedback on if something broke. If we had automated practices within uh, Fedwire, we would spend a lot less time fixing bugs and a lot more time innovating. No one wanted to work for the Federal Reserve and no one wants to work for all these big corporations because they will not spend most of their time innovating. They will spend most of their time fixing bugs. And no one wants to be fixing bugs their entire career. Anyone who's worked on a reasonably complicated application that doesn't have automated testing knows exactly what you're talking about. It's not just the Federal Reserve or government agencies. Exactly. Now, what was the second? I'm just taking some notes in the chat channel here to kind of help organize the flow of ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think he also basically, in a roundabout way, asked about TDD, tester development. Yeah, so TDD, a very interesting concept. For some things, I think TDD is amazing. For other things, I'm still looking to find the value of TDD. Uh, If you're doing feature work, most definitely you should be doing TDD. A lot of times I start working on a feature and I go off on this complete tangent of how I'm building the feature. I spend maybe a week working on something that could have been done in a day because I did not clearly define the task ahead of me. And this is even more true for more junior developers who are just starting their career. Now, if you outline, or if you have your product manager outline exactly what they want to see from the feature, you're not going to run into that problem. You have a very defined task, you have a defined output, you're coding to meet that output. You're not doing anything extra, you're not going off on tangents, you're just doing that job. Now, the flip side is working on more R&D work, which I guess is more of what I'm doing. Like right now, I'm refactoring a machete. Kind of by definition, I expect the tests to be there from the beginning. A lot of times I experiment with like CI processes. It's a little bit harder to do test-driven development there as well. But I would say for feature development, it is definitely the way to do it. And there are lots of tools which I recommend. Have you guys used Storybook? I think I've looked at Storybook, but I don't know if I've used it. Right. So Storybook is one of my favorite test-driven development products. Essentially, what it forces you to do is break down all of your code into components. A lot of times, especially in corporations, the way that development is done is to see the product as a whole, to see the feature as a whole. And then when you try to write tests for it after the fact, you realize that everything is so tightly coupled that it's impossible or extremely, extremely tedious to write that test. Now, if you start from the beginning of having all of these things as individual components, there are so many advantages. Writing those tests is super simple. And also, if another team, if another product needs to use the same components, they're not going to have to filter through all this crap that you also put in, which has absolutely nothing to do with the component. And this is, this is what Storybook does for you? Yes. Or is this what mod- modularizing and componentizing does for you? Both. But in order to use Storybook, in order to develop in Storybook, you cannot, by definition, not modularize or not componentize your features. That looks interesting. And does that work with Angular, React, Vue? Yep. Whatever. Mm-hmm. React Native too. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. It looks like they have a whole list here. Angular, Riot, Svelte, Ember, Ethril. Mm-hmm. Cool. So do you just put this... Does it work with your CI or is this a utility that you run against your 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 system or your app? 
So think of it as a sandbox. And in this sandbox, you define all of your features and you define all of the states of those features. So it works really well for React because that exactly is the React model. You have your components and then the only difference uh, of one state or another is the properties that you pass. So I might have my modal and I might have one state open modal, another state closed modal, another state modal with header, another state modal with close button, another state modal with close button and okay button. And this way, not only do I have all these states outlined, I also have them in a way that can easily be used in another application. And I have a visual representation of every single feature and every single state in my application. So when I'm a new developer and I'm coming in, all I have to do is read through my storybook and I know how the application works. Nice. We may have to get somebody from this project on, on the show too. Absolutely. So we, we kind of started with Pickle.js and then we kind of worked our way around to how you approach a lot of the other tooling. I mean, what's your ultimate goal then? You, you know, we're talking about like uh, some of the trade-offs or some of the benefits of testing, you know, with, as far as how quickly you can move and what you need to understand in order to move and things like that. But like, how do you measure the maintainability or the malleability of your code? I suppose there's a bit of a abstract measure for how good your code is. And I call it the fear factor of your code. How afraid is everyone of putting in something new or changing something? If people are very afraid, you don't have very maintainable code. If people think that you can change something without everything breaking, you have pretty good code. And the sad reality is most companies, as they get larger, people are terrified of changing this underlying technology. Right. And that is what stunts progress, innovation, and really keeping those companies ahead of their competitors. The companies that understand this concept and eliminate the fear of change will be the successful companies. I agree. I just wish you could put a number to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, there certainly are numbers you can put to testing. Uh, there are tons of coverage uh, indicators. So it basically, this is mostly for unit tests, but it will go through your entire code base and it'll say like, this path has not been tested. This path has been tested. Mm -hmm. But you're right. One of the reasons why testing is so difficult is because it is a very qualitative thing rather than a quantitative right. thing. This is essentially the struggle of most developers uh, inside of a company. The developers say, we need to implement this good practice. And the product managers say, why? Give me a number. The developers say, there isn't really a number I can give you, but practically it will help us. I really wish there was a number and maybe in the future there will be a way to quantify it. I personally can't think of a great way right now. Right. Yeah. One thing I like to talk about is employee uh, retention. So what does it mean to grow your company? First of all, you're growing the actual product, but more importantly, the company is only as good as the engineers and well, really all the staff working there. And employee retention is a huge problem. You know, people are switching companies every year. And the reason is that they aren't working on problems that interest them. They're not working on stuff that stimulates them. Mm -hmm. You can exactly. eliminate this problem by essentially opening up the pathways of innovation and getting rid of all these mundane bug fix tasks. That's fair. I mean, I've left jobs because I wasn't happy and I don't know if, if I would have quantified it quite that way, but that was a big part of it. Absolutely. Well, what are the reasons that you have left your jobs in the past? Well, usually it was either the people or the project and the project. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it was just, you know, I, I'm not interested in the overall problem that the app solves at all. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was, I go to work and I'm exhausted by the time I leave because I feel like I have to wade through waist-deep mud in order to basically put a cookie jar on the shelf, right? It's mm -hmm. way more work than it ought to be and I'm exhausted 
and I just want to work on something and feel like I accomplished something by the end of the day. You're absolutely right. Yeah, that's actually one of the reasons why I transitioned from being more of a feature product uh, developer to being more of a developer tooling R&D developer is because a lot of the times I don't actually care about the problem that the company is trying to solve. But what I do care about are technological issues. And I feel that a lot of developers who are essentially going to change the most in your company, that's what they care about most. They might not care so much about the idea of visualizing a house, but they do very much care about the 3D technology surrounding it, the architecture surrounding it, the different problems, the countless issues that you have to solve in order to make this possible. Yeah, well, and I will tell you, and the two are not completely unrelated, but generally when I left a job, it was because the slog through the mud was Mm -hmm. one or two particular people Mm -hmm. as opposed to technological issues. But the the interesting issue, the interesting thing is, is if you get the right tools in place, sometimes you can obviate some of the painful aspects of that. And sometimes you get rid of those people and then you find that they're the ones that are holding you up from being able to implement the things that make things better. And so there, there are a lot of things that connect there. And I don't know exactly how to quantify all that. That's very interesting, actually. Uh, I would love to dig into what these people did. That, <laughs> Uh, yeah, this isn't the horror stories episode, but yeah, generally they're people outside the code organization. Mm-hmm. And typically what happens is, yeah, they they either keep moving the target. I left a job because of that. And so it was essentially, okay, this is what we're creating. And then the next week, okay, this is what we're creating. And it's something completely different. Mm-hmm. And no tooling is going to fix that, right? You're just, you're just going to have to keep fighting uphill. Um, the other one, though, was the project manager on one of the contracts that I worked. And the issue there was that he he wanted to stick to the scrum process, but he wasn't interested in making the scrum process easy. Mm. And so a lot of our planning issues and things like that, right? We had all the right tools, but the yeah, the other processes around it were so painful that it was just hard. It was right. hard to get anything done. And it wasn't, you know, we we'd try and implement some of these other tools that would give us a better view into our code. And a lot of times we did it as skunkworks projects. And, you know, would essentially pass around the output <laughs> so everyone could see it, w- except him. And mm-hmm. yeah, just having to work around people to use the right tools in the right places was really hard. But I have worked on other projects where, yeah, things became super tightly coupled. And it was because we essentially, we didn't design anything. We just, you know, we just glom on more code. The The issue on the, on those fronts was that, yeah, we didn't have anything that told us that we were boxing ourselves in until we had boxed ourselves in. And then when we went to kind of dig our way back out, like you said, we went to the CEO and said, hey, look, you know, we need to rewrite parts of the app so we can continue to move forward in a reasonable way. And, you know, he he got angry because essentially he felt like he was going to pay us all over again to write something that we had already written instead of recognizing that you know, we, we knew things now that we didn't know at the beginning and we just needed to make things get into line with where we were headed next. Mm-hmm. But it was going to take more time because we had to go do those refactorings. Absolutely. I think you outlined so many different reasons why a developer would leave their job. And these yeah. are reasons why uh, that many companies do not realize. I think, well... Uh, I'm I'm just going to add to the the statements there that when I left those jobs, I mean, looking back, I realized that those were the issues. But when I left, I left because I didn't like my job anymore. And I don't know if I could have explained to anybody why I didn't like my job anymore, right? I could I could say, oh, I don't, I'm tired of working with this project manager, but I couldn't explain the rest of it. Hmm. I think, and this is a general theory that I have, A lot of unhappiness that we have in life, I have bipolar depression, for example, generally comes from a cognitive dissonance in between what you know you should be doing and what you're actually doing. And a lot of times you can't really say what it is because that reason is buried so deep inside. You are so used to the way things are, so used to the way that the company runs, that society imposes certain standards, 
that you can't even imagine what a better scenario will look like. Mm -hmm. However, when you do feel sad, depressed, annoyed, angry, all these emotions are your body telling you that you are doing something wrong. And I think it is our duty to dig deeper under these emotions to find out why. I think that's fair. But given the current climate with software development, and pretty much for my entire career, the last 12 years or so, the easy fix was always to change jobs because there was always another one out there. And so I didn't have to face down these issues until I had time to process it away from the old job. Right. But there's a problem in that. It's oh, 100%. Kind of, yeah. It's essentially like dating. You know, I have dated a few girls and a lot of times I say, okay, you know, with this girl, there's this problem. I feel unhappy. You know, I'm going to break up. Next girl. I date her, you know, same problem. I break up. The problem isn't with the girl. It's the problem is with me. I need to start looking at what am I doing wrong? What is wrong in my life that is causing these kinds of issues? Jumping from company to company is only a band-aid for these kinds of problems. Well, sometimes it really is toxic and you really do need to leave. I don't want anyone to try and stick it out if they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. But I think there I think some healthy self-reflection there is appropriate. And in a lot of cases, what you'll find is that there are things you can do to make it better. Mm -hmm. And then you can start to decide whether or not the things that you can do to make it better are actually worth it. Absolutely. I definitely think that it starts with open communication with the team. I think that it's very important to know as a developer what you want to work on, what kind of problems are interesting to you, what your work style is. For example, I am a senior developer. And typically what's expected of a senior developer is a leader, someone who takes charge, someone uh, who innovates, someone who essentially leads large projects. That is not exactly who I am, though. I suppose in a lot of companies, I was put on a track where I would lead a team to create a certain feature, to create a certain product. But that was a terrible fit. It made me miserable because that's not what I wanted to be doing. I'm someone who enjoys experimenting, playing around, creating new things, maybe not exactly finishing a lot of these things, but sort of seeing what is possible in a landscape. And this doesn't fit into the job description of a typical senior developer. I think what people need to realize as managers, as CEOs, as executives, is that engineers are all very different. There are people with different interests, different emotions, different work styles. And only by utilizing those specific strengths can they actually make the most of the developer and prevent churn. Mm -hmm. This actually sounds like it might answer part of the question I had earlier. So earlier you said, like, in order to, in order to scale, you're going to have to hire more junior devs. And that's part of the reason that you need to do more testing now. And I have the question, like, why do you have to hire junior devs as opposed to more senior devs? Like, what is the benefit that you get out of one versus the other? And I had a tie into that, but I want to wait to hear your answer first. Sure. So the fact of the matter is developers are a resource and they're a rare resource. There are only so many developers, and there are probably twice or thrice as many jobs or functions for those developers. Our company is sitting on a giant bank account with the sole purpose of hiring more staff. The problem is we can't find more staff. If, if you could hire only senior developers, like if there were the supply that you needed, because you, you're sitting on the, the cash to do it, would you only hire senior developers or is there actually a benefit that you get as a business by hiring more junior developers? There certainly are a lot of benefits of hiring junior developers. Junior developers are not set in their ways the same as senior developers are. Mm -hmm. Over the last eight years that I've worked professionally, I sort of have become set in my ways on how I do certain things. When a junior developer comes in, they come with a completely fresh mindset. It's also 
a bit of a moral obligation for us to mentor the next set of programmers. I think instead of searching for senior developers who are extremely rare, why not develop those developers who will become senior developers eventually? Okay, that's kind of along the lines of what the, the hypothesis that I had is that, you know, like you're saying, you have a certain style of working, you are more of an R&D type person, you like to solve the problem, you don't necessarily like to do what I call the bricklaying. You know, you like to get the foundation down and then say, okay, this is a little bit wrong over here, go square this up. And that is actually something that junior developers can take an opportunity to learn and to do a little bit of bricklaying that is, you know, in line with where their skill set is and be able to do a job that you actually self-admittedly kind of suck at. Absolutely. Yeah. Like a really good example, uh, you might actually see him in the background of my screen is my friend, Sean. Sean is a junior developer, but he is really brilliant. He understands product extremely well. His very first project was an app called Snapcrap, which essentially is very simple. You have a camera and you take pictures of crap on the streets in San Francisco, which there is a lot of, and it automatically reports it to the city. Now, even though objectively I have more experience than Sean, Sean can still create a much better product, which went viral, than I ever can. And I think it's important to have those kinds of skills come into a company. Even though Sean does not have the same experience that I do in development, he can provide immense value to a startup. He's looking for a job, by the way, if anyone's hiring. <laughs> I, th- I think it's interesting that you bring that up. I mean, it, it does force companies, though, to be somewhat self-aware, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of companies, they say, I need a developer. And so they just go out and they look for the first basically human automaton that will come along and generate code, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of looking at it and, and objectively saying, you know what? These are the problems we're trying to solve. We need somebody who's good at these kinds of solutions. We're looking for this kind of a personality. We're looking for this kind of a cultural fit. We're looking for this kind, you know, and, and basically figuring all that stuff out. And going back to the idea of turnover, the other thing is, is that they may hire somebody who is capable and ticks all the technical boxes, but none of the other things fit. And so they have the turnover in a year because that person's miserable because the things that really matter to them are not the things that actually get ticked off with that job. And so it's fascinating to me too. And I've been writing a book on how to find a job and and helping people kind of identify when a company doesn't match up with those kinds of things. And yeah, I mean, it's, that's another thing that makes it hard, right? Is that it's not just, I need to hire a developer. It's, I need to hire somebody who fits into this spot right? I put somebody in the right seat on the right bus to get us to the right place. And if you don't do that, then, you know, if they're miserable, they're not doing their best work. And none of that really comes into play as far as getting you where you want to go. Exactly. Yeah. If you're hiring developers that are switching jobs every year, you're getting very, very marginal value out of them. Well, and it's time to go reevaluate, right? Mm -hmm. Who did we hire? Why didn't they work? you know, what, what can we change to make their situation more palatable or better? And are we hiring the wrong people, even though they have the right skill set? Exactly. Hiring is a very difficult problem. It's a people problem and people problems don't really have numerical solutions. We get so used to the technical end of things where we can quantify a lot of things. You know, I mean, even when you're looking at a product, you can quantify how uh, your velocity and your, you know, the, you know how complicated the code is. And, you know, there are all these measures that you can get on your code. Mm-hmm. But if you're not looking at the other things, you know, you're, you're going to miss things that are critical that are going to cause you pain at the very least and may actually kill your company if, at the very le- at the worst. Absolutely. I think that definitely we are starting to get to this point where technology is getting much more complex. And in order to mm-hmm. solve these kinds of issues, we're going to have to make a very major shift in how we approach hiring programmers and how we approach uh, the development of programmers' careers. Yeah, it's funny. My So I have a brother and a cousin and any number of other people that I've gotten to know 
that are going through computer science programs right now. And it's funny because they come to me and they go, so what of all of the things that I'm learning in my classes do I need to know? Like, what's the most important thing I can be learning? And I look at them and I basically say the, the most important thing you can learn is how to work with other people. Because as the complexity of the software goes up, it means that you have to have more people with more ideas working on the project. And so if you cannot communicate well about what you're doing, then you will not be able to do your job, even if you can write the code, because ultimately you're going to have a mismatch on what, what the expectations are. And those are harder problems to solve than how do I write a function or a method or a class or an app that solves this small particular problem that I'm approaching right now. Exactly. You're absolutely right. I think communication is at the heart of most of these problems. And that's really what we should be focusing on. Unfortunately, the U.S. school system does not exactly teach communication. It teaches that there are right answers and there are wrong answers. Yep. Even in college, they do that. And it's, it's interesting because even in some of the more squishy topics, they still tend to do that, right? I mean, that's why we have people coming out of different schools, basically with different schools of thought that are unwilling to discuss with other people their ideas. You know, you see this in politics, you see this in lifestyle, you see this in all these different areas. And yeah, they come out of it thinking that they have all the right answers, where in reality, you start talking to people and you realize that there's a spectrum of why people care about different things different ways. And if you don't understand that, then you can't have the conversations that are going to be productive in society. And it's the same thing on teams. It's just on a smaller scale. Absolutely. Man, I just want to keep talking about this for the next like four hours, but I, I don't think we can. So it's interesting, you know, Ty, we, we kind of been talking about kind of the people issues, but, uh, you know, and, and AJ kind of pulled some of the tooling back together. So how do you design your tooling then to help solve some of these problems where we're talking about communication and and, you know, clarity in the code and things like that, that are really hard to measure, but are really critical to writing great software. Absolutely. I think in my role at Hover, probably the most important thing is how clean my code is and how easy it is to understand. It doesn't matter if it works or doesn't work. What matters the most is that the people using my libraries and using my, my code enjoy using my code. Well, it has to work. Well, it doesn't matter if it works or not, but it has to work. Of course. But yeah, beyond that level, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Like Pickle, it does not have to be a complete library, so to speak. There are lots of pieces of Pickle that are missing. However, because of the way that Pickle is built, I feel that other people can easily extend on it. A lot of open source libraries that I run into I think are written very well. They solve problems uh, very well. But as soon as I start to extend them, that's when the problem comes in. There is no documentation. I cannot understand the code structure. I don't feel that I'm empowered to extend on top of the library. And that's a problem. Even if you're the best developer in the world and you solve uh, this complex issue, it doesn't matter if you're building a library for developers, which will come up into other situations which are not covered by your library. A really good example, have you used OpenCV? OpenCV, that sounds really familiar. So pretty popular library. It's essentially a computer vision library. Oh yes, I have played with this. Mm -hmm. So if you go to OpenCV's website and try to read the documentation, they make you download a zip file of HTML files. If you try to read the documentation, you're basically going to see a whole bunch of formulas. If you look into the code, it is a mess. Now, OpenCV is one of the most popular and most powerful libraries, but it's written by PhDs. And PhDs, while they are incredibly good at solving problems, they generally have the approach of the quick and dirty approach. And I don't think that is the right approach to take when writing a library. Yeah, because you're solving a problem, but you're creating another problem. Exactly. And it's unfortunate that some of the most interesting solutions, some of the most interesting libraries 
are hidden behind this wall of complexity. You know, I would love to work more with computer vision. I would love to work more with Ethereum. I would love to work more with machine learning, all these different topics, which right now have incredible solutions. But this wall of complexity, which an average developer cannot breach without months of investigation. Mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree. And, and it's, it's fascinating too. I mean, I've also heard open source developers essentially complain they're not getting adoption. And the reason is, is because it's so painful to get started with their library. And it's not because it's hard. It's just because there's no good walkthrough on it that, you know, people go find something that's a little easier to get rolling, even if it doesn't solve all of their problems. Exactly. Like going back to uh, my friend, Sean, the reason his application was successful, even though it was literally two screens, is because it was easy. It solved a pro- an immediate problem that people in San Francisco wanted to solve. And you don't have to be a PhD principal engineer to solve that problem. Yep. What was that called again? Uh, Snap Crap. It's a great name. Of course, Google says Snap Crap app. <laughs> mm-hmm. How much involvement do you have in the hiring process and things like that at Hover, if you're not a team lead per se on feature development? I personally stay out of the uh, hiring process. It's not something I do well. I don't interview well. I don't ask the right questions. I cannot really evaluate. I don't feel Mm -hmm. that my skill set is the right one for interviewing. Now, a few of my colleagues, even though they're junior to me, are great at interviewing, are great at finding out more about a person and making that person feel welcome. However, what I can do is once the developers are hired, I can make them feel a lot more comfortable by providing the right solutions. That makes sense. And it feels like we've kind of come full circle on this topic a couple of times, but we've kind of hit different points along the way. And it's it's funny how often we find that these technical details and these tools that we look at as technology, yeah, in, in some sense, we can kind of uh, narrow down the effect and just you know talk about that particular topic. But none of this happens in a vacuum, right? All of it affects all of the rest of it. Exactly. And I think more importantly, like we do have to focus on our strengths, really mm-hmm. find what we are good at and enjoy where that intersection is, and perhaps not do some of these things which society expects of us. Yep. Well, I said I wasn't going to talk very much because my jaw hurt and I talked a lot. (laughs) (laughs) AJ, do you have anything else you want to bring up? Or or you, Tully, do you have anything that you want to talk through? Mm, Not specifically. No, I think it's a wrap. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. All right, good deal. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. AJ, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, I got two good ones uh, this week. I mean, every week I've got good ones. And some weeks I have two of them. But these are good, good ones. So there's the Phoenix Project is a, it's kind of a, a, a textbook in story form about IT development and operations. So it, if you're into business books, I kind of think it's like it's kind of like a, a storybook form in some ways to some of the points of the innovator's solution. So as much as I like it, I, it's hard to describe, but I, I recommend it. Um, it teaches you principles basically of agile and Kanban, but not in a buzzword like media outlet Twitter type of way, but in a like pragmatic. These are the types of problems that happen in a 
a grown, mature enterprise and how to overcome them with best practices and principles that are real world useful. So I, I really enjoyed it. And I don't know if my description of it does it justice, but I think on uh, some of the audio listening platforms, you can get like the first chapter or two for free or something like that. So I'd recommend it. Also, another book that I've been physically reading, that one I listened to, but one that I've been physically reading is How to Diagnose and Fix Everything Electronic. I've mentioned a couple times now how I'm getting more into electronics. And I found most people's explanations to be uninformed, inaccurate, wrong, or just I can't understand them. I've had to watch like a ton of YouTube videos to grasp basic concepts because they're just explained in a way that is oftentimes not truthful. This book yeah, actually suffers some of the same problems in some ways, but it's extremely pragmatic and it focuses not very much on the theory so far, but on kind of like the way you need to think as a programmer, but the way that you need to think as a person approaching electrical problems. So I'm enjoying it and I'm finding it to be of greater value than some of the other resources that I've looked at, even though some of the lower technical details that he gets into, I question whether or not they're 100% correct just because, well, for instance, he said that electrons go from the negative end of the battery to the positive end, which is not true. Anyway, it's been very difficult for me to I don't know enough to judge a lot of these things, but this one seems really good despite maybe a couple places being incorrect. That's interesting. I started my uh, college career as an electrical engineering major, and they kind of start you out explaining, I guess, electricity kind of like water in a pipe. Which is terrible. You very quickly move away from that because it's not useful. The, The rest of it is quantified as far as, yeah, power and, you know, things like that. So yeah. And all the one-on-one videos and resources that I've watched and read, most of them, yeah, go with the water thing and it just doesn't actually explain what's happening. Yep. Well, I've got a couple of picks. Um, so I recently listened to a couple of books on audible that I'm going to pick as well. Incidentally, I do have the Phoenix project in my audible. I just haven't listened to it yet. I bought it and just never got around to listening to it. So it's on my list. And kind of the approach that I take on that, people are always interested to hear what I'm listening to, especially on the podcast front. Typically, especially lately, since I hired some new editors, I've been listening to devchat.tv shows just to make sure that they're coming out and getting edited properly and things like that so I can give feedback to the editors. I'm also in the process of hiring some show notes writers because that kind of came apart. But I I have a couple of people in the works, so hopefully that'll come up soon. I tend to binge listen to a couple of shows at a time. And then um, once I get through 10 or so episodes of the binge listen shows, then I'll go and I'll listen to an audio book on Audible. The shows that I'm binge listening to right now are the Gary V audio experience, I think is what it's called in iTunes at this point. But it's the Gary V show is what they call it on the show, at least back in 2016, where I'm at because I downloaded all of them and then started listening from the beginning, which was uh, probably a thousand or so episodes. So between the two shows, the other one is the MFCEO project. And I try and keep a clean rating, but the MFCEO stands for mother effing CEO project. And that's by Andy Frazella. Both guys tend to curse a little bit if that bothers you, just to kind of allow people to decide if they're going to opt in or not to listen to them. But they both give terrific, terrific uh, advice for building businesses and reaching people and, and you know, things like that. So uh, really, really enjoying those. As far as books, so I recently listened to two books. One is Skyward by Brandon Sanderson. It's his newest book. The guy kind of drives me a little bit crazy because I wanted a new Stormlight Archives book or maybe a Alcatraz and the Evil Librarians book. And I got a new series to wait on books on from him now. But he's a terrific author and I really, really enjoy his books. So he's not allowed to die for the next hundred or so years so he can get all the writing done that he's working on. And the other book that I listen to is The One Page Marketing Plan. And that's by Alan Dibb. And uh, that was really, it wasn't the most, what, comprehensive or practical book that I've ever read on marketing. But he very nicely and succinctly pulls together a lot of the good marketing information out there 
and boils it down so that you can actually put together a straightforward plan on it. And so I, I've enjoyed that. I've listened to a lot of other marketing content. And so about half the book or more was stuff that I had already heard from somewhere else. And he tells you that up front in the book. I didn't invent this stuff. I'm just putting it in the book because it's kind of the best way to go. But if you're looking for a kind of a comprehensive overall view on marketing, then that's definitely worth doing or worth reading. And a lot of the principles that we talked about as far as finding jobs or finding developers or things like that, I mean, a lot of, a lot of that, it ties nicely into a lot of marketing principles. So if you're looking to attract people or you're looking to get people's attention, then this may be worth a read if you're looking for kind of a different way of approaching some of this stuff. So uh, Tolly, what are your picks? So initially, I wanted to recommend a few libraries, but after our conversation, I think it might be more beneficial to recommend two activities that I think every developer should try at least once. Uh, a while ago, I got into Acro Yoga. Uh, have you ever heard of it? No. So it is a mix of acrobatics and yoga. And it's interesting in that yoga requires you to be in your own body versus Acro Yoga. It almost forces you to understand how the other person works, how the other person functions. A lot of what I learned about communication, a lot of what I learned about what it is that I want and how to communicate that to other people, how to find out what other people want and how to create synergetic situations where we both get what we want is through Akira Yoga. Another thing that I recently started getting into is cuddle parties. Cuddle parties? Never heard of it. Relatively new. It's definitely a new movement. But I think especially developers would greatly benefit from cuddle parties. Cuddle parties are a way to explore touch in a non-sexual way, but also to explore a lot of very work-related concepts like boundaries, saying what you want, saying what you don't want, and creating these same situations where you will be happy and your employer will be happy. All human interaction is basically the same. It boils down to creating boundaries, communicating those boundaries, and playing within those boundaries. And a lot of times when I was unhappy, and it seems that a lot of times when you're unhappy with jobs, it basically boiled down to not being able to communicate those boundaries. That's interesting. I think I heard a statistic, I, I can't remember, and I, I'm a little bit loath to quote it, but it was like 40 or 50% of adults are lonely, at least a good portion of the time. The number, I think it was 40 or 60%. I think it was one way or the other. But yeah, it's, it's amazing to me that we have all of this technology that connects us, but it's not meaningful connection, right? It's not being in person or having a real relationship with somebody it's reading their posts of what they ate on their vacation to Hawaii or a picture of their kid. And yeah, you know, people crave that kind of a connection. Exactly. Unfortunately, in my earlier career, most of my work relationships were very superficial. And it's because there was so much of that superficiality in those relationships was because I, uh, led to me not being able to communicate what I actually wanted to do as a developer. I think if I learned these uh, skills much earlier on as a kid, I would be much farther along in my career. I would understand what it is that I want to do and focus on that instead of going down pathways to try to please my bosses and my coworkers. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, no one benefits if our interests are not aligned. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that takes practice. I mean, you know, back to your point with cuddle parties, right? Mm -hmm. is that you kind of have to go through it a bunch of times to figure out how to know that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it, it, it makes sense to, to just kind of put yourself in a position where you can learn that about yourself, be it in your career or, you know, other things like, you know, how, how you like to be uh, touched in ways that affirm you, not you know, like you said, not necessarily sexually, but just affirm you as a person mm -hmm. that, you know, somebody is there and they, you know, they're connected to you in some way. Exactly. I think another thing is it's a very safe space. It's probably 
one of the safest spaces of my life where I know that I can do just about anything and it will not be seen as a bad thing. It will be seen as simply a mistake, something that I can learn from. And in a lot of companies, I did not feel that safe space. I did not feel that I could make mistakes and explore and not have consequences. Yep. Well, and I get a lot of that, you know, I cuddle parties, you know, I don't know. I get some of that from my wife. I get some of that from going to game nights with my buddies, you know, not a lot of touching there, but we're, we're still interacting. We're still having some form of interaction that way, personal interaction. So mm-hmm. I guess what I'm saying is, is, you know, find whatever it is that your cuddle party that's going to give you that kind of interpersonal interaction that means something to you. Exactly. All right. Well, one last thing. Uh, where do people find you online if they want to find you? Uh, sure. My website, tollycodes.com, T-O-L-I. Email me, tolly at tollycodes.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, you know, the usual, not much of a tweeter. Cool. All right, folks, we'll wrap this up. Thanks for coming, Tolly. Thank you. And we'll catch uh, you all next week. <laughs> Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.